Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. When tulips first arrived in the Netherlands, the nation is said to have lost its collective mind. Many of you have probably heard the story of the sailor who, in 1637, arrived at the warehouse of a wealthy Dutch merchant to notify him that a ship filled with his goods had just arrived in port. The merchant, delighted to hear this news, rewarded the sailor with a breakfast of fine red herring. The sailor saw what appeared to be an onion lying on the countertop, a bit out of place amongst the bales of goods. He slipped it into his pocket to add flavour to his herring and headed back to the port where he could sit down to eat. No sooner than he left the warehouse than the merchant realised that a valuable Semper Augustus tulip bulb worth more than a mansion in a fashionable Amsterdam neighbourhood was gone. The merchant and his staff tore the warehouse apart, searching for the missing bulb. A staff member remembered the sailor who had just left, and the merchant and his staff raced to the port in search of the sailor and the missing bulb. The sailor was found sitting on a coil of ropes, eating the last bite of his onion-garnished herring. He had been at sea long enough to have missed the news about the tulip mania that was consuming the nation. Little did he dream that he had been eating a breakfast whose cost might have fed the entire ship's crew for a few years. The sailor was charged with a felony and thrown in prison for his crime. Tulip mania is a great story. According to the Scottish journalist Charles Mackay, who told this story in his popular book Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, the tulip craze took hold of all levels of Dutch society. The rage amongst the Dutch to own tulips was so great at the time that the ordinary industry of the country was neglected and the population, even to its lowest dregs, embarked in the tulip trade. According to popular legend, everyone from the wealthiest merchants to the poorest chimney sweeps jumped into the tulip fray, buying bulbs at high prices and selling them for even more. The bubble inflated to its peak in late 1636, and by February 1637, the bottom fell out of the market. Tulip speculators began defaulting on their agreements to buy the bulbs at the agreed prices, and the traders who had already paid up were left holding the bag, either in finding themselves in debt or bankrupt. At least that's how the story goes. Economists and historians love to point to tulip mania as a warning about the perils of speculative excess. McKay's book, published in 1841, was an early study of crowd psychology that's considered a classic of economic history. The book was written in a journalistic and somewhat sensational style and initially published in three volumes. McKay broke down things like economic bubbles, witch mania, alchemy and the love of the marvellous and the disbelief of the true. But it was the three chapters on economic bubbles, the Mississippi scheme, the South Sea bubble and tulip mania that made McKay an enduring expert on the topic, regularly cited to this day. 
Due to its vivid storytelling, the book has been a bestseller of the genre since its first publication over 180 years ago. The popular press cites McKay whenever there's a concern about a new financial bubble. His book is on the recommended reading list of Goldman Sachs. Legendary speculator Bernard Baruch credited the lessons he learned from reading the book with his decision to sell all of his stock ahead of the Wall Street crash of 1929. Michael Lewis, the modern-day chronicler of Wall Street, included sections of the book among his six classics of economics that everyone should read. Over the last few years, we've seen things like board ape NFTs, meme stocks, doggy coin, and mass-produced Rolex watches inflating hugely in value in a way that makes many people feel totally confused, like the Dutch sailor confronted by a furious mob as he finishes his breakfast. Certain financial events that happen around us seem to make no sense at all. The story of tulip mania might help people to feel sane in a world that's gone mad, but the problem is that McKay's story was mostly untrue. In McKay's telling of tulip mania, you can read stories of individuals selling their most valuable possessions to speculate on tulip bulbs. He gives the example of a man who exchanged 12 acres of land for one of two existing Semper Augustus bulbs. McKay tells of individuals who suddenly became rich and how a golden bait was hung temptingly out before the people of Holland and one after the other they rushed to the tulip marts like flies around a honeypot with the goal of getting rich. Each believed, or at least hoped, that the passion for tulips would last forever and that the wealthy from every part of the world would send their riches to Holland to buy tulips at any price. According to Anne Goldger, a professor of European history at USC who wrote the book Tulip Mania, it was impossible to find record of a single bankruptcy attributable to Tulip Mania. She discovered that all of the outlandish stories of economic ruin, the story of the unfortunate sailor, stories of chimney sweeps rushing into the market in hopes of striking it rich, all came from propaganda pamphlets published by Dutch Calvinists worried that speculation and consumerism would lead to societal decay. The sailor's story is possibly a bit obvious. What merchant would reasonably leave something so valuable just lying around in a busy warehouse with workers coming and going all day long? And why would a sailor, when offered a cooked breakfast, steal an onion rather than just asking for it? This isn't to say that tulip mania didn't happen at all. Dutch merchants really did engage in a frantic tulip trade, and they paid incredibly high prices for some bulbs. And when a number of buyers announced that they couldn't pay the high price previously agreed upon, the market did fall apart and cause a small crisis. But there just weren't that many people involved in the tulip bubble, and the economic repercussions were small. Historians William Quinn and John Turner, who wrote Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles, say that tulip mania had negligible economic impact and it was too unremarkable to merit inclusion in their book. Tim Harford, in an FT column, points out that McKay wrote the book with hindsight some 200 years after the event and says that McKay seemed much more interested in cartoonish exaggeration than in accurate history. 
Interestingly, there might be greater lessons that we can take from the story of Charles Mackay himself than the lessons offered up in his book, as not only did Mackay misreport the story of tulip mania, but he lived through a number of huge and significant investment manias in his own lifetime that not only didn't make it into his book, but that he actively participated in and cheerled in the newspaper columns that he wrote at the time. So what really happened in 17th century Holland then? At the time of tulip mania, Holland was still breaking away from Spain at the later stages of the Eighty Years' War. The country was a major centre of international trade with some of the best ports in Europe. Trading outfits like the Dutch East India Company brought enormous wealth into the country, and Holland, unlike a lot of the rest of Europe, was mostly led by a class of wealthy merchants rather than a landed gentry. These self-made merchants wanted to display their wealth, and in this environment of international trade and exploration, had a fascination with natural history and the exotic. This meant that goods from distant places that were unusual in nature fetched high prices. The well-to-do Dutch attended lectures to learn about topics like zoology and botany. These were high-status topics to be knowledgeable about. This type of knowledge showed that you were a worldly and educated person. Tulips fit well into this mould. They originated in the Tian Shan Mountains at the border where China and Tibet meet Afghanistan and Russia. The plant then made its way to Turkey via the Silk Road, later becoming a symbol of the Ottoman Empire. The Dutch will have acquired their first tulips from Turkey. The Dutch learned that tulips could be grown from seeds or bulbs, but a plant that grows from seed may take up to seven years to flower, but a mature bulb could flower the very next year. Of particular interest to Dutch tulip traders were broken bulbs, Tulips whose petals showed a striped multicolour pattern rather than a single solid colour. The effect was unpredictable, but the growing demand for these rare broken bulb tulips led naturalists to study ways to reproduce them. The patterns were later discovered to be the result of a virus that actually harms the plants and makes them less likely to reproduce. The high market price for tulips during tulip mania were for particularly beautiful broken bulbs. Since breaking was unpredictable, this was a gamble for the growers, with growers vying to produce better and more interesting variegations and feathering. Not only were tulips shockingly expensive at the time, but the plants only flowered for about one week a year. As luxury goods, tulips fit well into the Dutch culture of the time of both new wealth and cosmopolitanism. They required expertise and appreciation of beauty and the exotic, and of course, lots of money. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you interested in small businesses? My name is David C. Barnett, and I've been podcasting and producing YouTube videos about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses for almost 10 years. I'm a former business broker and have owned and operated several businesses, and I've been advising business owners since the 1990s. Each week, I create a new podcast which answers one of your questions, and I've always got amazing, exciting guests. You can find me on YouTube by going to smallbusinessanddealmakingpodcast.com or just search David Barnett's Small Business in any podcasting app to find me. I look forward to seeing you around. 
A wealthy Dutch politician at the time is said to have built a garden filled with carefully positioned mirrors so that his few rare and expensive tulips would look like much larger clusters. People did overspend on tulip bulbs and they did lose money, according to Goldgar in her book. But rather than tulip mania causing mass bankruptcies, the main problem associated with the crash was an undermining of social expectations. Most of the deals that were struck at the top of the market were handshake deals based on trust. And when people started backing out of these deals, there was no real mechanism to enforce payments. The courts of the time were unwilling to get involved in frivolous disputes about tulip bulbs. Tulip mania was not much different to today's influencers blowing money on things like rare sneakers, handbags, NFTs or Pokemon cards. It was more about conspicuous consumption and luxury goods than a mania that destroyed a nation. The tulip market peaked in December 1636, and by February 1637, bulb wholesalers realised that people had lost interest. Within a few days, Dutch tulip prices had fallen tenfold. The lesson from tulip mania might be as simple as the idea that things, over time, just go out of fashion, not that society loses all reason in crowds. So what about the bubbles that McKay observed directly in his own lifetime, rather than the stories from history that he retold? Well, McKay was a popular newspaper columnist in his day, and an analysis of his writings by Andrew Oldwisco of the University of Minnesota shows that he was one of the most ardent cheerleaders for the railway mania, a mania that turned out to be one of the greatest and most financially destructive episodes of extreme investor exuberance in history. McKay, the expert on investment bubbles, lived through the four great investment manias of 19th century Britain. That of the mid-1820s, which involved investment in joint stock companies for mines in Latin America. The total capital invested in these schemes came to approximately 10% of British GDP and turned out to be almost a complete loss. The next mania came in the mid-1830s, a rare investment mania that initially lost a lot of money but generated positive returns in the long run. The biggest one was the railway mania of the mid to late 1840s, which destroyed wealth equivalent to around $5 trillion in today's money. And finally, there was another railway mania in the mid-1860s, with investment of around 20% of the GDP of the UK at that time. These were huge sums of money, and historians say that there's no other equivalent that comes close. No investment scheme in history has ever sucked in so much of a leading economy's output. It's described as if the entire industrial and financial base of Britain had shifted to a wartime economy, the generals being railway engineers and the enemies being the traditional forms of transport. At the peak of activity in 1847, the number of railway construction labourers was about twice as large as the British Army. The sheer scale of the investment nearly matched the entire budget of the British government, which was at the time maintaining a global empire and involved in a series of expensive wars. 
The cost of building all the approved railways, which could simply never have happened, would have been almost twice the country's entire annual output. Purely financial bubbles like Tulip Mania or the South Sea Bubble involve massive valuations and a lot of money changing hands, but very little real economic activity. There are zero-sum games to a certain extent. In these bubbles, you see extravagant hopes for easy riches being raised and then demolished in just a few months. The railway mania of the mid-1840s lasted for about five years and involved huge, consistent inflows of money from mostly individual investors over the entire period of time. Total spending on rail construction came to the equivalent of around $5 trillion in today's money, and almost all of that money came from individual investors. We'll focus mostly on that period, as during that time McKay was the editor of a small but influential newspaper, the Glasgow Argus, and we can see how he thought about that bubble in real time based upon his writing. Andrew Oldwisco, in his paper on the topic, analysed all of the articles written by McKay at the time, and the pieces by other writers that he edited and included in his publication. So what did the historian of financial bubbles think of the railway boom? Did he spot another mania that had broken out right in front of him? Not at all. In 1845, he wrote an editorial saying, We think that those who sound the alarm of an approaching railway crisis have somewhat exaggerated the danger. It may appear wise to the careless or the ignorant to trace resemblances between the South Sea mania of our own country and the Mississippi madness of the French in the last century and the railway mania of the present day, he wrote. Those, however, who look more deeply into the matter and think for themselves cannot discover sufficient resemblance of cause to anticipate a similarity of effect. McKay was a technology enthusiast, and he wrote of how railways were not just investments with promising profit prospects for individual investors. They were a dazzling new technology that was transforming society and annihilating time and space, in a catchphrase that was heard frequently back then. Railways were so different, according to McKay, as to lead to the very opposite conclusion from that reached by the alarmists. Now, the truth is that all of this spending did mean that Britain was left with world-leading transportation infrastructure, as is often the case with investment bubbles. Something of value is left behind. The lines built in the 1840s still form the backbone of Britain's rail system today. But the malinvestment in rail turned out to be an absolute disaster for a large number of ordinary citizens who pumped all of their savings into it. In late 1849, Charlotte Bronte wrote that many ordinary people were left deprived almost of their daily bread. Writing two years after the bust, the writer John Francis said, no other panic was ever so fatal to the middle class. Six years after the event, The Economist wrote that mechanically or scientifically, the railways, with all their multiplied conveniences and contrivances, are an honour to our age and country, but commercially they are great failures. Many investors were not just left penniless, they were left in debt. 
a popular way of investing was to put up a 5% down payment to get a toehold in a share. It was called scrip. If you paid £5 for a scrip in a £100 share, and then the £100 share doubled in price, well, you just made £100 on initial payment of just £5. No wonder people got excited. Unfortunately, that leverage works in both directions. Investors bought and sold this script, feeling like geniuses when prices rose and they flipped their investment for a profit. Not many thought about what would happen if share prices were to fall. It's somewhat amazing that all of this was going on right in front of the eyes of the expert on manias and bubbles, and he entirely missed what was going on. Not only did he miss it, but at the peak of speculative excitement in late 1845, a mere four years after publishing Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, McKay was among railway mania's most enthusiastic cheerleaders. Andrew Old Wisco writes that even among railway enthusiasts, McKay was at the extreme fringe. At the time, Britain had approximately 2,000 miles of railways in service. The dominant view among supporters of the railway mania was that the country would need 20,000 to 30,000 miles of rail, roughly the length of its turnpike network. But there was a small minority, which included McKay, who claimed railways would grow well beyond 100,000 miles of track. Even the most bullish railway supporters viewed such expectations as insane. McKay was an advocate for so-called direct railways, which were lines that were meant to connect pairs of cities or towns by the shortest route possible, avoiding detours through the major points along the way. The few direct lines that were built turned out to be financial failures. Similarly, he liked the idea of atmospheric railways, a disruptive technology where the train travels inside a vacuum tube propelled by atmospheric pressure, thus doing away with the need for an engine on board the train. No one was more enthusiastic than McKay about the new transportation technology. His embrace of continuing rapid railway expansion until horse and coach traffic has entirely disappeared put McKay at the extreme fringe of rail enthusiasts. It meant he expected the network of rails to spread over 100 or 200,000 or more miles, and this was all to be done with profit for the investors. McKay was aware of the existence of sceptics, and he occasionally published sceptical pieces written by others in his paper, but he appears never to have wavered in his belief that there would be huge profits coming down the line. McKay repeatedly assured his readers that on the whole, railway investments would be profitable, but at no point did he attempt to support this position with any quantitative arguments. It turned out that railways were both more expensive to build and to run, and worse yet, the demand for them was much lower than expected. As is often the case in investment manias, optimistic projections outran reality. At the end of 1845, railway share prices began to crash. Poor harvests combined with anticipation of increased demand for money for railway construction led to an increase in interest rates. 
As railway share prices collapsed, McKay was kept busy reassuring his readers. He claimed the blame for the decline should not be placed on the higher interest rate set by the Bank of England, but on the Corn Laws tariffs on imported grain that had been put in place to favour domestic agriculture. He argued that opening the ports would revive confidence. Even the best-run railway companies of the time suffered from the economic downturn. Rising interest rates made capital expensive and slowed the economy. There were too many duplicate lines in place, and investor expectations were impossibly optimistic. With his outrageous stories about tulip madness, McKay made it seem easy to spot a financial bubble. In his book, he explained that you don't need hindsight to see a bubble, that they're obvious if you think calmly and independently. But perhaps it wasn't as easy as he thought. McKay stood right in the middle of this massive bubble, looking around at it, debating it and discussing it, and entirely missing what he was witnessing. His blindness to what was going on is something that's commonly reported during financial manias and bubbles. He missed it because of his belief that this time is different. McKay never had much to say about the railway bubble after it had deflated, at least not in his writing. The closest he came was to add a footnote to a revised edition of his book many years later, which read, The South Sea Project remained until 1845, the greatest example in British history of the infatuation of the people for commercial gambling. Tulip Mania, a heavily exaggerated story, went down in history as one of the great bubbles of all time. It was a colourful story borrowed from Dutch Calvinist propaganda that allows us to feel superior knowing that we wouldn't fall for something like that. It's easy today to look at silly ideas like NFTs or other collectibles and feel like we were somehow smart for not buying them. But in truth, very few people actually did buy them, and the ones who did possibly knew they weren't good investments. They were just showing off that they could afford these things. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends, as there's no algorithm for podcasts. They just spread by word of mouth. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.